Can we really speak of an Old Testament God as a God of love? Why does a God of love speak about his law so much? And why does a God of love endorse violence both from and towards his own people? And what does love mean anyway, then and now? Welcome to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmer Hall, Durham, where we explore big questions and try to join the dots between theology, church and the world. I'm your host, Philip Plimming, and in today's show, I'll be talking to Richard Briggs, the Director of Biblical Studies here at Cranmer Hall. Our question is, can we really say that the God of the Old Testament is a God of love? Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Richard, welcome to Talking Theology. Thank you. It's good to be here. First of all, Richard, tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to the job that you currently do. Well, I've been at Cranmer for 15 years, teaching the Old Testament that whole time. Uh, Before that, I taught and studied and was in ministry in various places around England. And about three or four years ago, I got ordained myself. So I'm also an associate minister in a group of three churches on the east edge of Durham Thank in, you. My, in my spare time. I, um, I know, Richard, that your primary interest, as you say, over those years has been uh, the Old Testament. And today we want to look at the uh, question that, that lots of people struggle with as they encounter that particular section of the Bible. You've no doubt encountered this as a, an Old Testament scholar. I know I did as somebody in local church ministry. Can you understand why people struggle to think of the Old Testament God as a God of love. Yes, absolutely. I can understand that. I think there are various reasons why it happens. I think one simple reason is that for a lot of us, I would include myself, my introduction to thinking about God, my introduction to Christian faith came more through the New Testament. And the New Testament celebrates life and newness and love. And it's very easy to imagine that one of the things the New Testament is reacting against is the Old Testament. Uh, I think I would say the New Testament was really reacting against other views that were around at the time. But it's not hard to understand how people who don't then go on to experience the Old Testament think that perhaps, well, God was angry in the old days, but then came Jesus and... That's when, that's when love entered the picture. That's when God became nice, or however you put that. So I do understand it, but I, I always want to move on quickly to trying to explore why people think that and have they actually experienced uh, the Old Testament and learnt about God from it themselves. Well, let's have a look at some of those um, Old Testament kind of questions. Um, first of all, let's look at the law um, uh, given to uh, Moses uh, according to tradition. If if God is a God of love, wh- why is he always telling people what to do? Yes, uh, that's another familiar question. And I think, again, it's easy to understand why people think that. So one thing I say um, frequently to people is that the word law, while it's not a, not a bad word for understanding what's going on in Old Testament passages about laws, isn't really the the best label for understanding these passages where God is, as you say, telling us what to do or telling us what not to do. Uh, the The word that would be used in Judaism to describe this part of the Bible, the early 
uh, books from Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers is Torah, meaning teaching or instruction. It does mean law, and so it's not wrong to say that this is the law of the Old Testament. But the point I always want to make is that Torah is an upbeat, happy, and heartwarming word. Uh, And that's my main problem with law in English, that not that it's not technically an appropriate word to describe what we've got in the Old Testament, but it doesn't capture the emotional resonance. And I've yet to meet that many Christians who think, oh, great, let's study some laws in the Bible. But actually, you would spend time with Jewish believers and say, let's read the Torah, and that would be a really positive invitation, a life-giving invitation. So how do we get ourselves into a position to think of law as evidence of God's love for us? I think that the Jewish understanding, and so in, in many ways the original Christian understanding, is that God loves us so much that he wants to tell us what's good for us and how to live. And that doesn't give me an automatic and straightforward explanation for every single law in the Old Testament, but basically says the fact that God communicates with us is a life-giving and loving thing. Uh, I don't know if you've had experience of spending time with someone who refuses to give any indication of how they might like to spend their time. You you show a friend around uh, when they come to visit your hometown and you say, what would you like to do? And they say, oh, I don't mind. I'm easy. I'm happy to do whatever you suggest. But what would you like to do? Well, I, I don't really have any opinions. In the end, you think, actually, this is a person that's very difficult to understand uh, in what sense they're engaging with me, how they love me or how I, I love them. So communication and initiative is part of that loving relationship. So God comes to the human race and says, do this and you will live. Uh, On the other hand, do that and you will not live. And sometimes those verses can look like they are punitive in some way, that God is punishing a certain kind of behavior and we can't fully understand why. But most of the time, I think it's about God saying, here is the way of life. So let me explain it to you and then please do walk in it. And if you take a different path, then that will have negative implications. And it's also worth pointing out, of course, that the laws, which really start around about the Ten Commandments in halfway through the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20, they're not the first thing. So there is a sort of narrative setting within which God describes the relationship that he has with the human race. And then we come on to reflecting on ways in which some ways of living are life-giving and some ways are not. So accepting that there are occasional laws where we scratch our heads and wonder why they're there, I think overall we can see that the law is part of the way that God reaches out to us, desiring a loving relationship. Can I pick you up on just something you said in the last bit there, when you were saying that the law came in context? And I guess what you're referring to there is the way it happened after the Exodus. That is to say, it was the Exodus was a divine initiative, not based, we understand, on the merits of the Israelites, but rather on, I guess, what we might say is God's grace. Yeah. Uh, How might that balance, therefore, for you, point you to a God of love? One of the things I've learned from Jewish friends who talk about uh, the God of the Old Testament and the Christian desire to say that this is also the Christian God, uh, 
they sometimes look at Christians such as myself who say, isn't it great that through the Old Testament, God set in motion a story that would end up blessing the whole world? And I, I do think that. I think that is great. But Jewish friends have sometimes said, yes, but first of all, he loved us. <laughs> and let's not rush past that too quickly and say, yes, it's great that in the fullness of time, we come to see a way in which God loves all people across the whole world. But there was something wonderful about the fact that God picked Israel to love just because he loved them. And if you try and probe the mystery of why did God choose Israel, why does God love Israel, you can't really explain it. All you end up saying is, he loves us, if, if you're a Jewish believer. So I think there is that sense that God, for inexplicable reasons, pours out his love on one people and delivers them from slavery in Egypt and leads them out into their own future. And that's evidence of his love for, for his people. It's certainly also worth pointing out that when they come out of slavery in Egypt and head out into the wilderness, and there's a few chapters where they're kind of getting used to the fact that here we are living in the desert, what have we done? Um, the thing that God gives them within a handful of chapters of the Exodus event is the law. And again, I think that's not because God somehow suddenly thought, what have I, <laughs> I've got myself backed into a corner here, I don't know how to handle this. I think it's because God thought, if you're going to come out of this way of living in Egypt, you need an alternative way of living, and it's the one I'm going to give you. So again, the law as part of God's love for Israel, I think is is designed in the way that the book of Exodus unfolds from release from slavery, but release into in fact, the Bible uses the image of slavery for what we are released into, slavery to God, slavery uh, or servant servanthood in our following of God. And the New Testament picks up on that language too. Yeah. Let's spool forward a bit, Richard, beyond the law to um, the conquest at the end of the journey through the, the promised land. I, I guess you'd recognize that's one of the, the, the toughest bits of, ex of seeing how that relates yeah. to a God of love. I'm just picking a, a verse at random, but it could be a number of them. Deuteronomy 20, 17, completely destroy them, the Hittites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded you. How do you deal with that sort of revelation of God and square that with this God of love? that you see portrayed in the Old Testament? Well, I'm not 100% surprised to be asked that question. I think that is, in many ways, the pressing question when we think about how do we understand the God of the Old Testament as a God of love. And lots of people have tried lots of answers to that question. So I think the first thing to acknowledge is that the reason why so many people have tried so many different answers to the question is is itself testimony to the fact that this is a troubling question. And I don't have a simple knockdown answer that uh, I can now reveal to you and all will go home happily ever after. I think, oh, why didn't I listen to that uh, a few years ago? That would have solved all my problems. But there are things we can say that I think begin to help us uh, understand passages like that a little bit better. I think you read from Deuteronomy 20, um, and that's not totally dissimilar from other passages in Deuteronomy which is quite strong on saying that there must be no uh, engagement no interaction no involvement with the ways of life of the people in the land in Deuteronomy 7 you get the interesting juxtaposition of God saying you must totally wipe out 
the Canaanites, and then in the very next verse saying, and make sure you do not marry any of them, which does suggest that the language of wiping out or the language of annihilation may not be understood straightforwardly and factually in the way that it looks to us on the page. I sometimes wonder, I wouldn't put it stronger than that, I wonder if the language of a destruction in some of these passages is about the dismantling of the society and the way of life. And so there is certainly a, a, a profound opposition there to the way that other people are living. And the goal is that at the end of this process, they won't be living that way anymore. Whether that means that the command is to kill people is much less clear. Sometimes the nations that are listed in these verses are anachronistic. They're not actually descriptions of people who were around at the particular time the relevant verses are described. You see that in later books like Ezra, who's still prohibiting interaction with these same nations, even though these nations don't exist anymore. So it feels like the language works in a sort of um, headline way. Uh, there's this way of living that is characterized by the names of all these nations, and we must not engage with that. Um, to go back to the Exodus example, I, I always remember reading the Exodus in a small group of people where one of the people in the group was Egyptian, and it was an emotional problem. I don't think it was more profound than that, but it was an emotional problem to say, well, Egypt's the enemy, and, and I'm Egyptian, so what am I supposed to do with that? So yes, if you were a Hittite or a Perizzite or something, there is, there's work to do in how to understand this as good news. But for Israel, I think it's not about particular people all the time. It's about symbolic ways of understanding life and its value so uh, no intermarriage with other forms of religion because that would involve you worshipping other gods and uh, ways of living which mark you out as different and separate clearly by the time of Jesus there are all kinds of issues going on about what sort of marking out as separate is life-giving and what sort of marking out as separate has become just an end in itself. But at root in Deuteronomy and other parts of the Old Testament, I think it's about symbolic ways of saying live this way and not that way. I would like to be able to go further and say I don't think any actual Canaanites were harmed in the making of this book. I don't think I can quite say that. I think there was death and I think there was uh, war and conflict in these Old Testament times because that was the world that they lived in. We don't live in a profoundly different world now. So it's not that no one was harmed as a result of these verses, but I do think the language can be read in other ways than God saying, you're my tribe and I want you to kill that tribe. How does that play, therefore, when the violence or the, um, uh, the, the, the kind of aggression, dare one say, is this time not directed towards the Perizzites and the Jebusites, but this time is actually towards Israel itself? I'm thinking of the exile when actually God said, I'm going to let my people be conquered. And, you know, if I guess the question's posed, if God was that much a God of love for his people, that particular people you mentioned earlier, why did he let that happen? Yes, why did God let the exile happen? I think the profound wrestling with the exile, so we're talking about the 6th century BC, the fall of Jerusalem to the Babylonian Empire and books like Lamentations that really wrestle with a sense of desolation, Jerusalem lying deserted. We don't think it was actually empty, but it was clearly um, 
it was dismantled, to use that word again, it was dismantled in certain ways. Leaders were taken into exile. Other people were in charge of daily life. Um, it would have been easy for Israel, in some ways, to blame that on uh, other gods being more powerful than their god, to say that we haven't done the right things, we haven't done enough of the right things to counterbalance what other nations have been doing. And you do get that in ancient Near Eastern literature, reflection on war and defeat in terms of whose God was more powerful. Israel, in a sense, is caught in a difficult place because they only want to believe in one God. And so they can't blame another God for what's happened to them. And I do wonder if that's one of the reasons why we get so much probing and challenging literature in the Old Testament, because... So, for example, a book like Job, on a personal level, Job can't deal with what's happened to him by saying, well, I guess another God is having a better time of it at the moment. There's only his God, the God of Israel, who can be responsible for what's happened to him. And so that provokes quite profound inner reflection on what's going on. And on a national level, I think the exile does that. It makes Israel say, what have we done that allowed our status as God's people to be jeopardized? in the way that God has not kept us in the land, not given us Jerusalem, and not looked after us. Um, because on a very simple level, you, you look at early parts of the Bible saying, God, God saying, I will give you this land forever, it will always be yours, and then they don't have the land anymore. So is God trustworthy? Is God reliable? I think that willingness to believe that part of what God does in our lives is deeply challenging and unsettling is a key issue that's raised by those kind of narratives. So when we say that God is a God of love, it doesn't simply boil down to saying everything is nice, everything works out, we get whatever we pray for, uh, God always wants things to be simple for us. There is that inner troubling that comes at the heart of following God, which is, which is partly a reflection on our the ways that we fall short of what God wants, and it's partly sometimes simply inscrutable. We do not have explanations for why God allows certain things to happen. We could have a philosophical discussion about is it possible that God could have stopped that or or couldn't have stopped it. I don't find those conversations very helpful. You simply find yourself in a situation where something has happened, and then you have to ask, well, where does that leave me with God? And the Old Testament is, in effect, wrestling with that on a national level at the exile. Can I take that up thought a bit further? And you said, look, there's, there's more to love than simply being nice. Um, uh, and your exploration of the various things in the Old Testament that we've looked at and the way they might be consistent with a God of love has kind of highlighted that. Can you say a little bit more about what contribution the Old Testament might make to this concept of love um, and, and how it might fill it out than perhaps a, a, an idea of love that, that might be current in society, which I guess might be focused around a particular set of emotions, feelings attraction yeah because it sounds to me like there's more going on that yeah. in the old testament that might help us here and i think that's a pressing question both with old and new testaments to say how can scripture shape our understanding of love so it would be difficult to find someone who didn't in principle agree that love is a really important thing but then to discover that actually we're not all talking about exactly the same thing um 
one interesting window on that in the old testament is that the language of the heart in the old testament isn't so much about the emotional and affective side of the person but is more about the seat of rationality or the will so you can set your heart on something and that i think we hear language like that with a slightly romantic overtone i don't just mean in terms of personal loving relationships but uh, you can set your heart on a particular car or something and it's a sort of affective thing but i think in the old testament to love is to exercise the will and the the mind as much as anything else which is why it makes sense to be commanded to love because i do understand the oddity of that language for people who haven't thought about it uh uh, love your neighbor as yourself and um, many people would say well that was jesus saying that but jesus was quoting leviticus when he said it so that language comes from the heart of the law well in what sense can you be commanded to love someone that many people i think today would say well you either do or you don't and have you actually met my neighbor I'm, <laughs> there's no chance that i'm gonna love him or her but if it's part partly to do with the will partly to do with the mind there is a step of obedience that can be taken to implement loving action and loving attitude towards a neighbor and therefore fulfill that that commandment and how does that reflect back therefore on the god of love if love is about a decision of the will rather than an an effective sort of emotion how does that turn back to god's love that's a really good question and i suppose it would help us to recognize that God's love is also, if you like, an act of the divine will, mm. uh, that God God is making a decision. All, all of our language about God is, is approximate, but God is making a decision to love us. It's... Um, it's not necessarily fully explicable, but aspects of it can be discussed and talked about and understood in the human mind. Um, and there's something about love as an ongoing commitment. One one classic language for that in the Bible is covenant language, but it doesn't have to be covenant language. It's the language of love is the language of uh, entering into a relationship that moves forward and looks ahead. And is that the language of hesed in terms of covenant? Yeah. I mean, tell us a bit more about what... So there's a wonderful word in Hebrew, uh, hesed, as you say, which which is sometimes translated covenant love or steadfast love or uh, loyal love. I think a good translation for the word is loyalty, although it's a pity to lose the word love from the translation. So, Because then the danger is to say, well, we could have other ideas about love. But there's actually something much more important and that we're going to call that loyalty. In a way, I think loyalty is one of the headlines of what love is in the Old Testament. And you, you said it, it's about this ongoing. Love is not an emotion in the moment. It's a decision that, that's ongoing. Yes. Yeah, and yeah. a wonderful example of that, of course, is something like the book of Ruth, where Ruth is promising... Uh, into a somewhat open and unforeseen future, saying, I will go where you will go, and I will live where you will live, and I will die where you will die. Um, So there is that sense of entering into an ongoing commitment. And I I think that understanding lies at the heart of 
any serious covenant-style relationship that has grown out of the Judeo-Christian tradition that comes out of Old and New Testament. Uh, it, it's a way of understanding human relationships that makes sense. It comes at a price because you find yourself committed in contexts where you think actually it would be much easier not to be committed to this person or this situation but i did make the commitment so what follows from that and i think we live in a world at the moment where that that notion is quite unfashionable um but the notion was there in scripture and it served us well for hundreds of years so and and, and is that idea of this old testament view of love as loyal love is that something that helps us fill out the new testament teaching about love and and if so um how does that happen because as you say if, if if we should see the new testament as building on that old testament understanding of love how does that loyal love kind of help us hear the new testament perhaps a bit more clearly well i do i always want to say that the new testament is is building on what's come before. And in certain senses, the New Testament is simply saying, did you get that the first time round? And for the benefit of those of you who didn't get it, let's just say it again. So when Jesus says, love your neighbor, I think I'm sure most people hearing him say that think, well, that's great, that's Jesus. But it is, in fact, Jesus saying, you knew this anyway, because it was in the law. And the kind of commitments that Jesus calls his disciples to make a lot of sense in this context. It's come and follow me. That's a, that's a forward-looking, it's an open invitation to a future that you can't really fully grasp, you can't control, you don't know where it's going to take you. But it's there is confidence in it because of the fact that you are loved at the heart of it in the relationship with Jesus. And I think that would work as you look into the letters in the New Testament the kind of ways in which Paul is relating to people. Paul, of course, notoriously having difficult relationships with co-workers in various ways, as we read in Acts and as we sort of glimpse in his letters. But entering into them with commitments and the openness to being loyal. And, and does that help us kind of explore like a key verse from like John 3.16 when it got so loved? The world how might that language of that love be filled out by this old testament understanding of decision decisive loyal love yeah that's a great verse isn't it and it's perhaps been well served and perhaps not been well served by being put on banners and posters around the world for many many years uh, to the point where it's so familiar we perhaps don't stop and think about it my understanding of the way uh, that works in John 3, God so loved the world, is that that's quite a remarkable reaching out from God. The, the language of the world in John, John's gospel and John in general tends to be negative. Uh, it's not just a neutral way of describing the place where we live, but it's sort of describing the place where we live as a domain of darkness, hence the emphasis up front in John 1 that the light shines in the darkness, the darkness will not overcome it, or however we understand that verse. But in John 3, God's, God even loved the world. So there's a lot going on that little word, so. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And that's a, that's a commitment from God not to give up on, on a world that looks like a very dark place at times and i 
I was brought up to say you read the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other. And I have to say there are days when I look at the newspaper and think, I think I'll put that down today and I'll just stick with the Bible. But actually, it remains a pressing need to say that what this message of love that's coming out of Scripture still reaches out to a world that it will not give up on. If I can kind of finish with a personal question, as you've walked with the Lord for many years, as you've taught the Old Testament, as you've gone on your own vocational journey... What is there in the Old Testament view of a God of love that's fed you, that's perhaps a place that you return to, whether perhaps a verse or a portion or a truth that, that kind of means, that's meant something for you personally over the years? Well, it has been a sense of an ongoing journey. Um, at regular points, I thought, ah, I've got the Old Testament now. I've understood it. And that's always been a mistake because I've always gone on to realize there was more I didn't get. And there are certain stories in it that have always been really important to me. Um, I think, I'm not sure if this is a one that's focused on love, but I'll start with it anyway. The story of um, God or the angel wrestling with Jacob in Genesis 32 had a really difficult transition moment in Jacob's life where he's clearly messed up on many fronts and he's heading back to a family reunion that's going to be difficult and God comes and meets with him and wrestles with him and Jacob says I will not let you go without a blessing and that sense that in some ways that's actually quite a confrontational uh, God it's a God who's interrupting Jacob and not allowing him to pass without wrestling with him uh, this is one of the two places where Jacob is renamed Israel in the Old Testament, which seems to suggest that there's something about the nature of Israel, which is to wrestle with God and to struggle with God. But I've I've often thought of that passage at times where I am feeling low or dif finding life difficult or wondering how to understand what God wants from me, that actually God is not giving up on me. And even though it can be difficult to encounter God, it's testimony to his persistence uh, with me that he that he remains part of part of my life even on the bad days that, that might be an example of the loyal love yeah yeah i think i read it that way that yeah. that uh, it's not just god saying i'm i'm fed up with jacob i'm gonna no. see if i can knock him out before he gets home it's about god saying if you're gonna enter into this ongoing relationship if uh, if your offspring are going to become uh, the fathers of the tribes of Israel, then you really have to engage with what I want from you and who I want you to be, and I'm not giving up on you. So that's really important to me. A God who doesn't give up. Yeah. That's, um, that's a great place to end as uh, we explore you. an Old Testament God whose love is a decision that he made and he continues to abide in. Richard, thanks very much for coming on Talking Theology. Thank you very much. You have been listening to Talking Theology, a podcast from Cranmahal, Durham. Cranmahal is a theological college within St John's College in the University of Durham, training people for ministry in the Church of England and other denominations. Find out more about us at cranmahal.com.